Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. The Elf on the Shelf brought everyone pajamas today. Yes, I'm very excited because I already got a sneak peek. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that you were zipping it back up because I couldn't decide if you were zipping it back up because you wanted to surprise and delight me or whether you were mortified that I caught you wearing a Mariah Carey Santa uh, Yes, so it, it is the all I want for Christmas is you. Yes, of course. Cover. So for those listening and not wonder, wondering what we're talking about. And the other thing I was thinking of, how do you feel about Christmas cookies? Oh, please. If it's a cookie, I love it. Well, but here's the thing. I agree with you in theory, but then when mm-hmm. you get into the weird Christmas cookies, that were the ones were like, I don't know if it's an entire generation of people or if it's just an Italian thing of let's make cookies that taste like licorice. Like you can just oh, kick rocks yeah, with no. that one. If I'm going to have anything that tastes like licorice, it's going to be absinthe. Like that's the only thing. <laughs> that, no, like that, I, I could go for the green fairy, not the elves. Right. No, if I could just get like, I, I want to taste the granules of sugar on mm-hmm. the cookie. That's what makes it good. I'm also very particular. I need to know who made said cookie and. You need to meet the elf that made it. Yeah, I need to know. Okay. I need to know that there was is not cigarette ashes or cat hair or anything of that ilk. Who, who makes you cookies? This is Why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. So the other thing we need to talk about is this week's episode... Mm-hmm. With our new friend Mike Kaplan, yes, who unfortunately you weren't there for. I was not there for. But I feel like our New Year's resolution is to have both of us be on all the interviews. Well, yeah, that's always our resolution. It's our always a resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I Mike needs a little bit of an introduction because we get into it in the interview, but it's so insane. We, I feel like we need to build it up. So Mike worked in PR for MGM. And through this process, worked with Stanley Kubrick on 2001. And I believe he said Barry Lyndon as well. Like he gave notes mm-hmm. as one does. He was very good friends with Robert Altman and Lindsay, Lindsay Anderson. And I said to him, like, well, if you had to pick three filmmakers to be friends with, you could have done worse. Yeah, it's a good little trio. Yeah. So to that end in 1968, when... He was the one who coined the phrase, the ultimate trip that's at the top of the 2001 poster. Yes. He also, when they could not figure out how to market it, wrote a song that nobody heard for Mm -hmm. 50 some years. And now it is out and available on vinyl. And that's why we were talking to Mike. So with all of that, um, put on your headphones, turn them up very loud. We're going to play a little bit of the song, which have you listened to it? I have. It's insane, right? Yes. In all the best ways. In all the best ways. How did this song get rediscovered so long after it was originally? Uh, 
commissioned, if you will. A friend of mine, Alan Nichols, the actor and musician who was in a lot of Robert Altman films, and we had met on Buffalo Bill and the Indians, um, had done the background music for an Altman film called Three Women, mm-hmm. and um, which you may know. And um, he had been talking to Wave Theory Records about bringing it out, which they wanted to do. And uh, Three Women was a film that I also worked on. I'd been trying for a while to get um, Gerald Busby's score released as well. And Alan said they should contact me for any kind of publicity material or anything that what the jacket should look like. So uh, Dan Jones, the head of the company, who's also a composer, and started the company as a, a record company by composers for composers. Uh, I sent, you know, we started talking about three women. I sent him various things and did together with uh, Gerald Busby. And I just mentioned because I'd want to do something with my music, but I never uh, have been courageous enough, I guess, to do it after certain things that have happened with it in the past. I just mentioned I had done this song for 2001. And I told him a little bit about it, and he wanted to hear it. So uh, I said, okay. And I first sent him the story, the background history of it, uh, which is uh, an interesting piece, which he thought was really fascinating. And he said, well, if you feel comfortable in sending it to me, please do, because um, it wasn't, you know, uh, used originally. And so I sent it to him and he he loved it basically and was very smart about what it could mean in um, regard to the total history of music for 2001, uh, referencing Alex, Alex North, North's original score. And mm-hmm. this was another situation where uh, a piece about 2001 was coming to, was surfacing years after it was made. So, and he was, and he, as a composer, and he's extremely bright, and I, he was very supportive, and that's how it happened. I was just shocked. I mean, I have to say, I love the song. I, uh, in talking about it with my co-host, I tried to describe it to her, and the best thing I could come up with was, it was as, as if somebody took Nico from the Velvet Underground made her watch 2001 and then say, okay, tell me what the movie's about and set it to music. And I mean that all as a compliment. And I, I find myself repeatedly going back to listen to it. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. I'm really uh, touched by that. So to go back to, like you said, the story of this, it's 1968. Uh 2001 comes out. No one's really getting it. And you suggest, what if we had a, was it you who said, let's have a single for this? No, no. I was, uh, I'm calling myself the marketing strategist for the film, which I was, it was the point that marketing wasn't even a term used in the film business in 1968, but everyone knows about it now. So that's why I, I see that you use that. And um, uh, Stanley was in New York and he had an office uh, right next to, uh, it was a, a big um conference room office for the uh, advertising publicity department. And I was in the publicity department or, and was right next door. And I, I, um, 
I just felt that the film was re- was wasn't positioned correctly to begin with, and audiences weren't responding to it because they didn't know what to see. There wasn't any preparation, so my passion was to turn to change the campaign or change the awareness of the film uh, in its marketing, and um, um, and. Um, one day I was, uh, and I'd be with him and we'd be brainstorming there, uh, you know, constantly, all the time. I mean, I was living the film practically. And uh, so so one afternoon I'm in there and Mort Nassiter, the president of MGM Records, comes in and says, and Stanley knew about this, but he hadn't told me, obviously, that... Um, uh, they've got this single uh, about 2001, which they want to release to tie into the movie to capitalize on the, the film uh, being out. And uh, I knew nothing about that. I did know that there'd been a rumor, which Stanley confirmed that the Beatles were interested in doing something because there was this quote that John Lennon said, I see 2001 every day, but nothing had happened about that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, so we, Morton asked a, had a tape recorder or something and he put this song on and it was this really banal kind of love song from the 1950s that ended with and I'll still love you in 2001 I mean that was kind of the, the level of the song so he's so, trying to picture Kubrick's face as well, that play <laughs> and I'm looking at him and we're incredulous at this you know that this is being presented this uh, cliched song about, you know, this revolutionary movie. I mean, you know, no understanding of it. So um, Stanley, when it was concluded, he just said um, to Morton Asset, he said, well, I don't think so. We'll see what the Beatles come up with. And because the Beatles thing was in, and that ended and it was a very, uh, a very astute way of just, you know, shutting it down completely. And so then he turned to me and he said, you write music, why don't you write something? And I was stunned because one, I kept my music very private. I don't even know to this day how he found out that I wrote music, I have no idea. There was one or two people at MGM I worked with who knew that. And he must have spoken to them at one point, but one of them's passed away. And the second one doesn't remember him ever asking her about it as well. But Stanley had a way of finding out things about everyone or everything that he was interested in. So I told him uh, I was really flabbergasted that he had proposed this to me. And then I said, well, you know, what I write is uh, more like standards. Uh, you know, I couldn't do do anything. I couldn't even imagine anyone c- coming up with the idea of having a single for 2001 to begin with. I mean, it seemed preposterous because his use of music in the film is one of the most creative uses of music in any movie that's ever been made. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how could you approach a single? So... Uh, and then he gave me this look, which I call, uh, there's a still, which I don't know if you've seen, uh, which I found, it's called the, um, that's not good enough look. And it's like this piercing eyes that, that stares right into your eyes. And um, uh, it's his way of saying, you know, well, I'm not buying that. You better come up with something better than, than you know, uh, that, that I write standards. So, um that that's how it happened. And I, I was living right next 
door to the MGM building and uh, in, a, in, a, in a walk up brownstone and I would go back and forth. So he planted the bug in my head and I, I got into it. Uh, and uh, so for the next month, I tried to figure out a way of doing it and that pounded away on the piano. And did you know the fate of Kubrick's previous musical collaborator on the film? You mentioned uh, Alex North. He had a breakdown, didn't he? In Alex working with Kubrick? Yes, is, is the I, story I've heard. I don't know. That, that, I don't know. I, that I don't know. I didn't even know that Alex North had written a score. Uh, oh, okay. So this I, I was all... I was unaware of that. I mean, I was just trying to deal with the film, which no one had seen until uh, like five days before it opened. And uh, we're all kind of... Um, in another world, not knowing what to do about it and how to, how to approach it until, um, you know, I saw it a uh, second and third time and saw it with this, you know, with this revolutionary masterpiece about um, various things that you could interpret about evolution, about reincarnation, about uh, um, man's development over millenniums. I mean, so, I, I wasn't I, I wasn't aware of anything else um, that had been done musically, and I had no idea at all. I didn't think I'd even try anything. But then he planted the seed in me, and then I eventually uh, came up with this using. Um, I just knew it had to be something different that didn't sound like anything else because it had to reflect mm-hmm. that aspect of the film. And And I think it does it really nicely in a way that makes complete sense. And again, when you hear that phrase, like the hit single from 2001 seems like that shouldn't work, but it it does. So what did Kubrick make of it when you played it for him? Well, uh, I don't know if you, you, you read the story. I, um, uh, so it took about a month and, um, you know, I had various um, elements that contributed to it that I tried to use as a, I tried to use uh, MacArthur Park uniqueness as a, as a jumping off point. Cause that was like right. a seven minute track that no one thought would, could be a hit. And, and it was, I mean, it wasn't like MacArthur Park in any other way, except in being unusual. And, um, uh, I told him after about a month, we hadn't spoken about it at all uh, because I didn't know if I would finish it or how I wanted to handle it. And I said, uh, well, I've written a song. And he said, well, come out and play for me this weekend. It was like he was expecting it. I mean, it, was, it wasn't- He probably a, knew, I mean. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, but we, we hadn't said a word about it since that meeting after Morton Astor. <laughs> Like, oh, well, you know, I'm expecting it anyway, you know, so good. Um, so I went out to, he had rented a house on Long Island. Um, he had been in New York at the pier and then moved out to Long Island in Great Neck. And there was a rumor that uh, the, it was the house that was supposed to be the uh, basis of Jay Gatsby's mansion in the Great Gatsby. I mean, there was all this nonsense that was uh, perpetuated through, you know, I don't know how they came up with that one. Anyway, so um, uh, Ira Marks, who had uh, arranged for the studio uh, and was a friend and the brother of uh, my girlfriend at that point, uh, 
and we drove out and um, I was expecting, um, you know, and he, he, Stanley was very gracious as usual and offered us a drink or whatever. And then um, I was looking around the room and there was no stereo equipment. There was nothing there. I mean, and suddenly Anya, his daughter, who was probably around 10 at that point, uh, came in carrying this wooden Victrola uh, that looked like it was made in the 50s. And that's what we were going to hear the song on. And I've been used to hearing it either in, in the apartment, which had a very good piano, or uh, at the recording studio, which was a professional studio. And it sounded fantastic because it was, it was a state-of-the-art equipment. So this is what we were listening to, listening to. So we put the disc on and um, it sounded tinny. It just sounded weak. It didn't have any of the power that it, 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 the equipment wasn't good enough. It was, it was like a, you know, something you bought at a drugstore or something. It was just wasn't that, that's that was a rented house and that's what he had. Right. I, I imagine that the house would have a full stereo system or whatever. So um, he, we played it and then I tried to explain and reference MacArthur Park and what I wanted to do with the song. I mean, I didn't say very much because I was a nervous wreck to begin with. Uh, and then having this Victrola there. And then, so we played it and then he said, um, he said, let me hear, hear it again. So he played it a second time and he asked about the line, uh, a garden of personal mirrors. And he, and he said, who wrote that? He said, well, I wrote that. That's one of the lyrics. He said, well, that's very poetic. And then he said, uh, um, then he turned to me and he said, well, um, I, I don't know the exact sequence of, of, sentences but it was something like you know i know what makes a hit single and the uh the 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 music isn't catchy enough and the lyrics won't mean anything unless people have seen the film and i tried to argue with him i said well it would mean something to people who see the film but it would also be a talking point for the movie that they would spread the word etc so that was that's what what he said, and then he said then he offered to pay for it. And I said forget about it, and um, you know uh, we left. I was really shattered. I mean, I was just basically devastated by it because yeah. uh, I'd been very happy with doing what I set out to do, and I thought it was uh, appropriate, and um, uh. I was really emotional going back. I mean, uh, and uh, Audie Marks, my girlfriend at the time, said when I walked into the house, I was all white. And um, so that was that. And so, uh, you know, it uh, didn't alter our friendship at all. I mean, he was the, the, the master. He was the, the auteurist genius filmmaker. And I had an enormous amount of responsibility to uh, perpetuate uh, the brilliance of the film, which I spent about two next two years doing. And that was that. And uh, uh, we never talked about it again. And um, uh, I never played it for anyone else. Um, I had this disc so I could uh, play it and I, and I had it 
well, more recently with, uh, with, with digital, I had it on this loop of, I go to sleep to female jazz singing. So I had it on that. And then, um, so I heard it frequently and I always, you know, I said, this is pretty interesting. It sounds, you know, sounds as good as whatever I was listening to. So that's how, and the only other time that it aired was that, um, when the year 2000 turned to 2001, um, it played on KCRW in LA because a friend of mine, Gary Calamer, had uh, a radio show on KCRW at that time. And I said it would be kind of cool to play 2001 when 2001 became the year. And he, and he liked the song a lot and played it several times and the response was good. But that's the only other airing it's ever had until now. That's, so that's the story. That's wonderful. Now, you worked with Kubrick on Clockwork Orange and The Shining, is that correct? Not The Shining, on Clockwork Orange. Not The Shining. I, but you had like a friendship with him oh, yeah. after that. Uh-huh. I, as someone who loves all of his work, and I feel like the obvious question that people must always ask you is, what was he like? I'm comedian David Race in Los Angeles. I host a celebrity-filled paranormal talk show like no other. Monstrosity has great guests answering weird questions. You won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. Yeah, well, I do get that question a lot. Um, I mean, he was he was very um, demanding, very uh, friendly, very shy in certain ways. Had a very ironic sense of humor. Never raised his voice. Always was very logical. Always was was stimulating. Whenever we would have a conversation, uh, usually there was something that he would say that would be. Uh, you know, you know, just a unique way of describing something or uh, uh, he was very protective of his work. Uh, he had a great uh, capacity for details in, in distribution, which I've always felt was one of the reasons there are only 13 Kubrick movies, because he spent all this time, you know, over, you know, going over every possible aspect of how the film should be released, etc. And unlike Bob Altman, who I worked with as well, and he has made like 50 movies practically. So Stanley, he, he was just, and he had a great sense of humor. He was funny. And so, uh, um, and he always wanted to make sure that, um, you know, things were done economically and, uh, and yet he had his extravagances as well. And uh, he was, he, he was, it was like a graduation working with him because he was just, um, he was just stimulating. I mean, we just saw eye to eye on lots of things and um, there's no one else that I ever worked with that had that kind of um, um, uh, stamina and concern about uh, how things should be handled when a film is released. So we remain friends and um, 
uh, I would see him when I went back to England. And uh, I, if I had anything I wanted to tell him about, like the, the shiny I called him about, and from the middle jacket, and Barry Lyndon. Actually, I saw Barry Lyndon in England um, at uh, Pinewood with the censor. He had just made, made the film. Um, yeah, he was great. He was, he, he was terrific. I mean, and he would get on the phone if I hadn't spoken to him in like months. And it would be like, uh, Mike, this is Stanley. And sometimes he, he said, when he would identify his name because I would know the voice. And we'd be on the phone for an hour, two hours. It was like, you know, yesterday. Because uh, he, if, if there's something that I knew that he wanted or find out about for whatever reason, he would grill you. I mean, <laughs> he would grill you and uh, in the nicest way possible. But he would want to, if there was some knowledge that you had that he wanted to know about for whatever reason, he would get it out of you uh, to the nth degree. So it was always, it was always a pleasure being with him, really. And you also, looking at your filmography, worked. You mentioned Robert Altman, uh, huh? but also Lindy, Lindsay Anderson. I mean, three great filmmakers of the highest uh, quality. And I think you were even in one Altman film. Oh no, I'm sorry, two. You were in The Player and Buffalo Bill. Is that right? Mm -hmm. What, what, I mean, I'm assuming there's a little bit of a difference between an Altman set and how Kubrick ran his ship, just from what I've read. Yeah, well, I was never around uh, when Stanley was um, making either 2001 or Clockwork. Mm -hmm. And I only visited him once on the set of The Shining, um, uh, which was a, actually an amazing experience because I'll just, I, I walked into the, to the set and I thought we were so somehow in the commissary of the studio because there was, were all these uh, 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 cans of food and it looked like it was stocked like it was a, a, a massive uh, warehouse for, uh, for the studio. And I was with Andros Epaminondas who was his uh, assistant. And uh, I, I said, when, how, how often do you have to, does the studio change, you know, run out of food? He said, this, isn't a, this is not the studio, this is the set for the kitchen of The Shining. I mean, it was just so, uh, you know, perfect. I mean, it was, and detailed and anyway. Um, so I don't know, I know that, that, um, that the set of a, a Kubrick film was much more, um, I don't know how, from what I can tell, from what I've heard, it was much more um, business-like and much more, um, uh, it wasn't as loose as mm -hmm. uh, an Altman set. An Altman set was like, well, for me, it was like almost being, at a party because the atmosphere was fantastic and uh, um, he, he was concerned about what everyone thought about um, what they were doing. And uh, it was just very enveloping. Um, uh, and um, the, the story that I remember about uh, clockwork is that Stanley would also be um, 
very meticulous about what he was going to shoot. And if he didn't, it wasn't right, he'd wait until uh, how long it took for all the elements to come together. Whereas Bob, Bob was, you know, was very fast and would try things um, uh, automatically almost. I mean, he, 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 he his inspiration uh, was much more immediate. And the great story about Stanley uh, is with the singing in the rain scene where they were shooting it, um, uh, uh, the rape of uh, Adrian Corey and Patrick McGee at, at, at home. Um, uh, they were there for a week and everything that he tried to do wasn't working. And then he turned to Malcolm McDowell and asked, said, can you dance? And Malcolm uh, just started uh, singing singing in the rain and doing a few little kicks around the room and uh stanley grabbed him and they drove to uh his offices at, at his house and called mgm and got the rights to the film but it was that bit of uh, inspiration that happened when stanley said can you dance and malcolm started what he did mm -hmm. and Stanley knew that it was work, but they they had spent a week there without shooting anything because they didn't, nothing was working. So that would never have happened in an Altman film. Um, I'm not sure he would have come up with something as brilliant as that automatically all the time, but he did uh, on many occasions. It was much more, it was much more spontaneous. Uh, and Bob, uh, um, um, Bob, um, uh, gave a lot of cr uh, cre uh, credence to uh, the immediate idea that would strike him. And it may not work out at the end, but he would try it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Stanley, on the other hand, from what I can tell, would wait until he knew everything was perfect, and then he would shoot. One more Kubrick question. Uh, you've no doubt seen the film Room 237 and sort of heard some of these more elaborate theories about both The Shining, but really all of his films. Knowing what you know of your friend, mm -hmm. was he putting all of that in there? Do you think there's some part of his mind that was, well, I'm going to put this in as a reference to, I mean, the, the, the Shining, there's the, oh, it's an it's a allegory for the uh, U.S. government's treatment of Native Americans, or it is Kubrick talking about the moon landing. Did he work that way, or was this just is just his people wanting to read more into what he was doing? He was just trying to tell a good story that touched on the themes that fascinated him as a filmmaker. I think it's the latter. I think a lot of this. I thought that the movie was fascinating and entertaining uh, as uh, to see, but. Um, you know all that all that other stuff about uh, the pattern of the rug or the uh, I don't know how the moon landing came in that kept on um, uh, rising up every once in a while, right? Um, and um, I don't know there was something about the shadow on the um, on the moon was in the wrong direction and therefore right, yeah. You know, and all of that said, and you could interpret that, I guess, as saying, well, uh, he did that to show that, you know, uh, it, it was fake. Or you could say, you could say that he, you know, if he did it, he would have, he never would have 
done it with the shadow in the wrong place. I mean, so you could go either way, but that all well, that's basic nonsense. I mean, so I Kubrick never said to you, you know, I faked the help NASA fake the moon landing. No, no. Okay. Just wanted to confirm. <laughs> only thing, the only thing recently, um, I'm, I'm doing something uh, about Stanley, about his films, uh, which I know are going to happen. But in, in this research about um, that I was doing about um, Ken Adam, mm-hmm. uh, Ken Adam did the Bond movies, the sets for all the Bond movies. And evidently, according to what I read, I've never heard this before, that Stanley secretly lit the big... Um, I don't know what the set is in 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 the uh, yeah this the tub submarine tanker sequence at the end of like that yeah ever, and then then it it was reported or it was written that Stanley secretly lit that because uh, Ken Adam was a friend I never heard that but that's the only thing that made me think for a second well maybe he did shoot the movie. <laughs> Two thousand one, A Garden of Personal Mirrors by Mike Kaplan, is available digitally right now wherever you get your music. You can also get a limited edition vinyl copy from RoughTrade.com or from MondoMusic.com. You can check us out on all the various socials. Be sure to visit our website and don't forget to leave us a review. Today's show is produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant producers are John Survey and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?